Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 167, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And welcome to the first show of April. It still blows my mind that we're now into the fourth month of 2019 already. It's crazy, isn't it? Have you been fooled yet, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I did get through Monday unscathed. Um, but there is always, I mean, in the technology industry, there's always the traditional April Fool's jokes that do the rounds. Google always do, like, so many every year. The one I really like this year is, though, that they actually put a real-life working version of Snake into Google Maps. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. I, I actually didn't spot any April Fool's, so maybe I have been fooled and I don't know You are the it. fool. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, the one I always see on the Facebook groups, and people were doing it again this year, in the retro selling groups, you must have seen these in the past. It's like, okay, guys, I'm moving away to Spain this weekend. My entire collection, I've got N64 DD system. Yeah, I've got yeah. an Atari Jaguar with CD-ROM. It's all got to go this weekend. I'm surprised the Dreamcast 2 didn't make an appearance as well. Because that, that, that's yet. always <laughs> popping up, isn't it? There's a, a What was it last year? It was Dreamcast on the Switch. That was the yeah, thing, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, I mean, there's so many every year, but the ones where people are like, yeah, I'm giving away my entire collection for free to the first person who comes <laughs> to get it. There's a few of them doing the rounds. The one I like best this year was actually from a recent guest on the show, Christian from Perifractics Retro Recipes. He did a video announcing the Commodore Plus 4 Mini. Now, he went to like great lengths to do this. He actually got the box, you know, the, the C64 Mini, reprinted with a Plus 4 on there. He put the tagline, the world's worst-selling microcomputer <laughs> reborn. And he'd actually done, like, you know, some shrinking down of the case. He went all out with it, actually. And there was bits in there where he's talking about, you know, doing spreadsheets with a joystick and all that. I mean, it was very tongue-in-cheek, but I think that was my favourite April Fool's that, That's year. smart, because there's a lot of mini <laughs> consoles out at the moment. So uh, doing that, God, plus four mini. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd actually buy one because I do like the plus four, but I'm probably the only person that would. So if you want to watch this video, I mean, uh, I don't know if you spotted any so, good April so Fool's. So you were actually excited. You were like, yeah, plus four mini. <laughs> <laughs> I, saw the title, I was like, what? I didn't realise what day it was. Uh, if you want to watch this video, though, I think that was my favourite April Fool's this year. I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, there is a mini console coming out that is not an April Fool that has been everywhere. I even saw this on the BBC the other day. It was on BBC News on TV. Okay. The Mega Drive Mini is really happening, and it looks like it's going to be good. So we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Now, before we get into this week's show, um, we've got an incredible guest coming up this week. And we must apologise if we do sound a little bit sleepy today. I think our uh, our eyes look a bit like uh, pee holes in the snow, I think is the expression. Yeah, because uh, we've done another chat with Australia, <laughs> and uh, this is with Sean Mills. Now, Sean Mills is awesome. He's our Sierra expert, and yep. he's basically works for Infamous Adventures. He's done Sierra remakes. So these are kind of like follow-ons of some of the games, or prequels or sequels and uh, they're for modern systems but he's also writing a book about Sierra Adventures so his Sierra knowledge is strong and we're going to be talking all about that amazing company. Well we have covered it you know we had our low on the show a couple of years ago and that was like yeah. really in depth about like Leisure Suit Larry and games like that. This one's going to be a bit more broad it's covering everything from the early days right through to the FMV era. Yeah if you think they went from the really early adventure titles to like full motion video, seven CD-ROMs and yeah. full CGI stuff, you know. So, I mean, you know, Sierra, what a legendary company. And like you said, I mean, Sean, he's one of the, I'd, I'd say one of the world's leading experts on Sierra. Really interesting. He's got a new book coming out soon. So it was worth the 5.30am alarm this morning yeah. to come in and do this interview, absolutely. So Sean Mills is going to be our guest. The history of Sierra coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. 
Now, this morning when we did get up, you know, the rain was pouring down. I had to sit and rush our traffic coming in very early in the morning. But we love doing this show. And it's worth doing because of your support. Now, we do say, you know, every week, however you can support the Retro Hour podcast makes what we do worthwhile. That could even be as simple as, you know, retweeting one of our tweets, telling a friend. I see that on Twitter all the time. A few people have done it this week, which is amazing, you know, tagging their friends in. I think you'd enjoy the Retro Hour podcast. Yeah, that's a really nice way of spreading it. And we'd really like to thank our donators as well yeah. because without you guys kind of this show can't go ahead you know you keep us churning along and support us now for making a donation of any amount i mean it obviously all 100 percent goes back into the running of the podcast and it's completely optional as well i mean the show will always be free but if you'd like to help us out into the running of the show you can make a donation via paypal you'll find the link on our website at the retrohour.com and for doing that you will earn your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame and get a shout in a future episode. Just like this week... John Piper. Adam Dimmick. David Wilde. And Photon Storm Limited, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find the link on the front page of our website at theretrohour.com. Now, while we're talking about amazing companies who support the Retro Hour podcast, we've got to give a big shout this week to... Retrosoft Studios, who are kindly sponsoring the Retro Hour podcast this week. Now, we've timed this very well because WrestleMania kicks off this weekend. Ah, yes. I used to love some of those old wrestling games. Do you love wrestling in general back in the day? Back in the day, I used to like it. Yeah, so I remember the 90s. Uh, was it the Attitude Era? What, the early 90s you're the talking? The early 90s. When it was I... WWF before WWE. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, and yeah, yeah. Uh, they'd have Scotty Too Hotty. Yeah. I remember him. Uh, the Undertaker. Oh, he was scary, wasn't he? There was a guy <laughs> who, who had about four clowns as well. We're trying uh, to remember who he was, weren't we? Uh, yeah, I remember he used to come on stage <laughs> and all these little clowns would come and jump all over everybody. But I also remember that there was a huge background of WWF and WWE games as well yeah. for the NAS and the SNAS. But I remember playing it in the playground at school, you know, like we'd be, we tend to be like Jake the Snake. I remember doing like the Boston Crab on my mates and only to break in the back <laughs> of the playground and Hulk Hogan before he did Tropical Thunder and became not quite so cool anymore. But you're right, I mean, when video games came along, it meant that we didn't have to physically assault each other in the school playground, which was quite nice. Now, WrestleFest was one of the biggest games back then. Um, you might remember that game, 1991, so that was right in the height of the WWF yeah. era. And there's this new game coming out, which is going to be called Retro Mania Wrestling. Now, it's by our good friends at Retrosoft Studios, and the aim of their company is to put a retro spin on modern games. So this new game they're bringing out is really a spiritual successor to WrestleFest. So, I mean, you're talking pick-up-and-play arcade action. This looks really cool because there's a lot of features in this game that wouldn't be in the original kind of wrestling games. Like there's ring entrances. Yeah. Because uh, I remember that was a big thing that came later on, like all entrance music and kind of being able to customise it. But it also looks like they've got a huge roster as well. Yeah, I mean, there's already 12 to 16 playable wrestlers uh, that they're going to aim to have at the launch of this game when it comes out. Um, already announced Hawk and Animal of the Road Warriors, uh, Tommy Dreamer, Austin Idol... Zack Sabre Jr., all the names that they've got announced are going to be in this game. 12 to 16 playable wrestlers at launch. You look at the sprites as well. I mean, the graphics look incredible. Now, if you want to get a little early look at this game, 
It's not released yet, but you can check out the progress of it by going to their website, RetromaniaWrestling.com, and follow them on Twitter, at RetroSoftStudio, and you can get a little look at the game in progress as well. And they tweet all the time. I mean, there's some really good stuff on their Twitter and their website if you want to check it out. So, I mean, perfectly timed in with WrestleMania kicking off and, um, you know, with this show as well. We love retro games that are getting updated for the modern era. Yeah, totally. Now, let's get into this week's news stories. It is really happening then. How long has this been rumoured for? Uh, A long, long time. So this is the official Sega Mega Drive from Sega. Yep. First party coming out on September the 19th. And the good thing is, at games are not involved. Yes. So they had (laughs) at games before and... As we mentioned last week as well, they had quite a bad problem with the sound and yep. you know, there was a little bit of lag and stuff like that. So we'll hope that Sega's done a good job, but they've got a bit of competition with the analog machine out there. Well, I mean, this coming officially from Sega themselves, uh, I think this is going to be a no-brainer if you're a Mega Drive fan. Now, the, there's actually going to be two different versions of it, um, as we expected. Same with you know Nintendo. Um, there's going to be a Japanese release and one for the West as well. Uh, coming out this September, they've already announced games that are going to be in the US version, and that will include Altered Beast, um, Sonic the Hedgehog, obviously, Space Harrier 2 is going to be in there, Echo the Dolphin, which I thought was quite an interesting oh, choice. Because yeah. Echo, I mean, I was never a massive fan of it as a game to play, but graphically, it blew my socks off. But everybody had it, didn't they, as well? It was one of those titles that even if people didn't play it, they'd be like, oh, just look how beautiful Echo is, you know? Yeah, that's the thing, it's like... It was a bit of a graphical demo for the Mega Drive, wasn't it? Really pushed the system. Um, stuff like, you know, Sonic 2, Puyo Puyo 2 is going to be in the Japanese version as well. And they're saying that they've got wired controllers. Now, let's hope they don't make the mistake of the NES ones, which were tiny <laughs> wired controllers, really close. The wires were quite short, weren't they? Yeah, but what's interesting about this is, though, it's actually going to have, from what I've seen of the news reports, it will have a cartridge slot in there. Ooh which means that you can apparently play your original games in it, which is that pretty nice. That would be really cool, that would. Like you said, they're going to be including uh, wired controllers, but they're actually USB controllers, which I've seen some people kind of whinging a bit about it. Like, you know, it should be the, the old, uh, you know, the D-Connectors, you can plug mm-hmm. the originals in. But actually having updated Mega Drive controllers that are USB compatible, you can probably use them on a PC and stuff as well. I think well, that's they a positive. have those PlayStation ones as well, yeah. which were kind of USB, but they had the little end that made it look like a PlayStation controller the only weird thing is though the japanese version is going to have the more advanced six button controller but the one in the west end are going to have the original three button one which is i don't know why they've done that but maybe Maybe, something to do with the games maybe there'll be like people ordering these japanese ones just to get the uh (laughs) six button controller and doing some ebay trading or something you know (laughs) what i think i think you might be right there because collectors will want to have them both won't they so they've got to make some differences i guess Uh, and they haven't announced too much information about the Western version yet, but we do know that the American version is going to cost $80. Okay. So it's not a bad price at all. No. And the thing about it is, you know Sega will do the presentation on this perfectly. It's going to have, um, you know, um, Yuzo Koshiro, who did the music for Streets of Rage, he's going to do the menu music for the, the screen when you turn it on. And like, like we've been saying, though, it's an open goal for Sega. They just needed to do this, and just to do it correctly. Yeah. And they just score straight away. You, you'll sell them and make a lot of profit. It makes sense doing it, though. I mean, yeah, okay, it's a cash grab because everyone else has done it, but you'd want to own one of these. And you know, that's the thing. Sega, I think, have listened to the fans. You know, they've listened to all the complaints about at games, and I think they're going to do it properly. So yeah. I'll be buying one, I think, you know, even just to hack it. I, I, I won't because uh, I've 
already got a Dreamcast and that also has this one CD which has like every single <laughs> game for all the old Sega systems. The thing about see, mini <laughs> consoles, you're right. You don't need them if you've got the originals, but there is just something about them. Yeah. I know Joe's going to buy like three. Yeah. <laughs> I've like the biggest Sega fan ever. So if you want to find out more about that, I mean, it's been all over, like I said before. I even saw that on the BBC TV news on Saturday. Wow. So this has been like headline news. It came out just a little bit too late to get in last week's show. But if you want to find out more about the Mega Drive Mini, I'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, it seems every week on the show at the moment, we seem to be talking about new software, new titles being released for the, the NES. And there is yet another one coming out. Yes, and this all seems to be down to this great piece of software, which is called Nesmaker. So this is actually available for your PC, and it enables you to create brand new NES games. And you don't really need, like much programming experience or anything like this okay. is quite drag and drop and you can flash it onto the original cartridges so you can fully create your game in the pc flash it onto your cartridge and then run it on your NES yourself which is absolutely amazing i think yeah it's nuts and they've recently ran a competition called bite off 2019 so bite off was kind of a games competition about using Nesmaker and seeing what, what these guys can create. And there's some really funny stuff in here. Um, one of them is called Office Hero. And it's kind of like you have to quit your job and live in an RV. <laughs> right. That's the aim. And the aim is to escape the office. And so don't you, we all want to do that? Come yeah, on. <laughs> you've got to find different routes of how to kind of escape the office. But I think this is really fun because, you know, you can create your NAS app. You can send it out there. You can have people download it to their own carts or you could have it as a ROM for people to emulate. Yeah. And there's full tutorials available on this Nesmaker site. I think it's really interesting. I love the fact as well that with this Office Hero game, I mean, they've, um, in this article, which is on uh, vintageisthenewworld.com, um, which I'll link up in our notes. It, they've actually done the artwork in there as well, which looks like an original Nintendo cartridge. Oh, yeah, artwork yeah. The it's like they've they've <laughs> mocked up the front of it and everything. They've got all the original. It's got the seal. It's got the seal on there, the quality seal. Uh, but also, they're offering apparently prizes to the first few players who can beat the game and find all eight exits to win it. And he said they're going to be kind of you know like traditional, really difficult puzzles like they were back in the old days. No hand-holding in this game at all. It looks like it might be a bit brutal. So that, that sounds really cool. I love the fact they're doing these kind of... You remember, like, you know, back in the day, they do these kind of... Um, it was competitions based on games, and you'd get the clues in magazines. Yeah, but you'd like, also get stuff like uh, shoot em up construction kit, game construction kit, you know, all these... Uh different kind of ways to make games. I, I remember there's quite a lot for the Amiga as well. I remember back then you'd, you'd kind of build them, but you'd also get map editors, wouldn't you? And you'd be able to do stuff. Well, this is fantastic because they also have 20-minute projects. So they have stuff like, you know, an adventure game that you can code in 20 minutes without well. <laughs> using any code. Uh, simple platformer, you know, shooters, maze games. Quite cool. See, for someone like me, they were always good as well because I did make a few, you know, admittedly really bad shoot 'em up games in Suck Shoot 'em up construction kit back yeah, in the day. That's it. Um, and yeah, because I mean, I've, I've never been great at programming, but stuff like that, we can just drag and drop little things around. And the satisfaction of having your own game running on the, the original hardware has got to be pretty cool as well. Now, speaking of the Amiga, which you mentioned then, there is another new game coming out from the team from Project R3D. Now, these were the team who were behind. 
again, that we reviewed on YouTube a couple of years ago, actually, didn't we? Just before we started doing this podcast, I think. Yeah, Tanks Furry, which was a really cool little game. And this this one is also a really nice title, but it's got this kind of really chunky, pixely kind of graphics that they've done. There. It looks quite modern, actually, and it's called Bridge Strike. Yeah, and their their graphical style is very recognisable, I think, isn't it? They kind of use these kind of these pastel colours. Yeah. And, yeah, they look very well made. What's kind of the aim of this game, then? So it's, a, it's like a, a flight kind of game, is it? Yeah, it just seems to be a kind of a, a, a shoot 'em up uh, right. <laughs> style. <laughs> uh, bridge fighting kind of game. Uh, different terrain, different weathers. It's got a full chiptune kind of soundtrack. Uh Diverse and demanding missions, so I'm not quite sure with that one. I need to give it a play. Well, that's the thing about this company, though. I mean, based on their past games, I played Worthy as well, which I believe was from the same team. Um, Very high standard of games. That's one thing about new games that come out for old systems. These programmers have often worked with this hardware for decades. So they know it inside out, and they can get tricks out of it that you couldn't in games that came out like back in the 80s or 90s. But also this is distributed in many different ways. So there's a boxed edition available, which is always beautiful if you're kind of collecting games. There's an ADF uh, CD version, and also there's some extras, like you can download the MP3 files uh, for the music and concept art and wallpapers and stuff. They always have a nice little package. I remember when we got Tanks Furry and they had a poster in there and they had a few other little <laughs> items. There was a tiny tank in there. Did we get like face paint and everything? We- <laughs> yeah, wall paint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll put that video. It's probably a bit cringe looking back at it now, but I'll link it up if people want to check it out. Just before we started the retro, wasn't it? About probably four years ago now, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, it's great to see this, this company still, you know, releasing games for the Amiga 2. So, if you want to find out more about that, I'll put that and everything else we talked about this week in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our special guest this week, Sean Mills, talking all about the history of Sierra Software, let's just take a moment to give a big shout to our good friends at Beer 52, the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. Now, their aim is to search out incredible and exclusive small batch craft beers from the world's greatest breweries and bring them back to their members. Now, they've been big supporters of the Retro Hour podcast, and here's something that's going to make everyone's ears prick up. Free beer. Can we say better than that? No. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you'd like to get your own case of free craft beer, all you have to do, nip onto their website at beer52.com forward slash retro and claim a free case. Now, this is a perfect chance to get some extra special beers in. And as a Retro Owl listener, we've teamed up with them to bring you a free pack. Now, at the moment, they're doing lots of stuff. Obviously, you know, we're based here in the UK. Europe's been on everyone's mind at the moment. You know, whatever you think of Brexit, whatever the outcome will be. At the moment, they're celebrating the relationship between the UK and Europe by doing this amazing pack that they've got, which is Citizens of Everywhere. And they're bringing, you know, beers from Europe, beers from the UK included as well. Whatever your flavour of beer as well, it could be dark beers, light beers, you could even have a mixed case if you like them all. And all you have to do, if you'd like to get your first case for free, you just have to pay the £5.95 postage and you will get eight incredible craft beers. They're Ferment magazine that actually, I I didn't realise how interested I was in beer until I flicked through their magazine. It's like so much in there, hearing about how it's made and the different flavours and stuff that are in there. And they'll even include a free snack in the box as well. 
as you know, let's be honest, beer's nothing without a snack. Good deal, that is, isn't it? And you get next day shipping too, so no-brainer really, isn't it? So there's no minimum commitment. Take the free case if you want, try the beer, see what you think of it. If it's not for you, pause and cancel at any time. All you have to do to claim your free case today is head on to their website, beer52.com forward slash retro. That's beer52.com forward slash retro and claim your free case. Right then, let's get the history of one of the most infamous companies in the history of video games, Sierra, with this week's special guest, Sean Mills. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and this week we are covering one of the most infamous adventure companies. And, you know, we're massive fans of Sierra games, so it's our pleasure to welcome on this week. And we're going to talk all about the history of Sierra and also about this amazing new book and Sierra remakes. So much we're going to cover this week with Sean Mills. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, let's talk about your kind of um, early experience with Sierra. When did you first come across the company's games and the company itself? Oh, look, the first um, first Sierra game I ever played, ever saw, was uh, Heroes Quest. And so that's actually, if I ever, if you ever see me on Twitter and that, and I refer to Quest of Glory as Heroes Quest, that's the reason, because that's what it always was to me. Um, look, my dad actually brought a computer home from work. We'd, we didn't have a computer in the house. He was a trainer with Australia Post, so I had you know, National Postal Service here in Australia. And um, he brought a computer home and it had Heroes Quest on it. And I just fell in love with with Hero Quest and just taught me to type and helped me to read. And, you know, I just fell in love with the, the whole idea. And, yeah, it just went from there. Did you kind of focus on adventure titles mainly because it had the kind of immersion and the, 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 the real different style of playing, you know, concentration and focus? Well, Hero Quest appealed to me because I was a huge fantasy fan. I grew up, my dad read us, as as little kids, my dad read us like the Narnia books and then the, you know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and all that sort of stuff. So I love that. And it's just still to this day, I love it. You know, I'm 41, I love it all the time. But um, yeah, so that appealed to me. And then I guess, yeah, the immersion, the story, the humour, you know, what, what Laurie and Corey put into hero quest is the humor of it it's so funny just the little puns the witty puns i I was actually a huge fan of um hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah and there's a great hitchhikers couple of good hitchhikers uh jokes in the game as well so that you would miss and just go past if you didn't know it but it's there if you do and i'm like yeah so that appealed to me and then um found out about the space quest games through friends of mine and i love space and sci-fi and all that sort of stuff quintessential nerd here aren't we all <laughs> and that's the thing about those adventure games about then they really got your imagination going as a kid didn't they mm. yeah oh absolutely probably even the space quest games more than the more than the quest for glories was that just that whole idea you get you get sucked right into it and well i did anyway i get sucked right into it and just you know you want to find out what happens next and you want to sort of develop the story and that sort of thing so yeah it's definitely the immersion, I think that's something Sierra did really well that not many other people, even to this day, have managed, um, is just create that immersion where you just get sucked right into it. So, yeah. And what about the hardware? I mean, what, what system were you playing these titles on? Oh, I was playing that on a 286, 16 megahertz with the full one megabyte of memory. We had the upgrade from the 640K, uh, 40 megabyte hard drive. We had VGA. That was a VGA monitor. So, yeah, um, no sound card, just the beeps and boops. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very, very basic retro machine. Actually had the turbo button on the front, so, you know, you could slow it down to, I think it was like 8 megahertz or something if the 
game was too fast. It was always weird that the turbo button slowed it down, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it yes. I think because people by default just leave it on. Yeah. I think that's what it was. So, yeah. Well, you mentioned you love the Quest games there, especially Space Quest as well, which was great yep. with uh, Roger mm. Wilco. Did this lead you to exploring other Sierra games because their collection was so diverse? Oh, look, it's... Um... I probably didn't realize how diverse the catalog was until I researched the book um, that we'll talk about later. But I, um, yeah, well, Sexter was an, was an early game. So I knew from day one that they did like arcade games or, you know, I realize now that's a port of a um, Japanese title. But, you know, um, the other one I absolutely fell in love with was Jones in the Fast Lane. Um, I still to this day pull it out and play it. I, I don't know why, but that era of Sierra games up until probably 92, 93, really, uh, they're all great. <laughs> there's just something, there's that little bit of, you know, pixie dust or something, you know, just a bit of magic to them that, at least for me, maybe it's partly the age I was when they came out. Um, but, yeah, definitely. I, I think the other thing is, you go into a shop back then, and you look at all the big boxes on the shelves, which, you know, you don't really even get nowadays. Mm. And you'd have, you know, two or three rows of Sierra games and a few LucasArts titles, a bit of the SSI Dungeons & Dragons or Panzer General, that sort of stuff, and a, and a rack of shareware. And that was pretty much about it. So um, Sierra was always at the forefront of even just going into shops in the late 80s. It was a box artwork as well that would draw you in, wouldn't it? That would be the, the main thing that would often get your eye onto a game on the shelf. Oh, absolutely. I remember uh, the... Um, oh, what game was it? Freddy Farkas, which is actually the first game I ever bought with my own money, not, you know, just pirated off someone. But, um, yeah, I just remember the artwork for that box and thinking, oh, and it's a Western, um, and it's... You know, I saw the, you know, from the creator of Leisure Suit Larry, so I knew it would probably be a bit dirty, which appeals to like a 14 or 15-year-old mind. So, um, did in my case anyway. So, yeah, I just, oh, the, the cover art for that. The other cover art I really love is just, actually, I think it's the worst one they did, but I love it for that reason, is the King's Quest 2, which is just these different doors. And apologies to Mark Crow because I know he drew that, but it's just, it's weird. <laughs> But it, it appeals to you, yeah. It, it sticks out, and they, they were usually embossed, so you had that tactile feel to it. And yeah. Would you um, buy any Lucasfilm titles as well? Yeah, I had um, had the first two Monkey Islands, which are just brilliant. Absolutely love them. I'm not one of these Sierra only, don't touch LucasArts. You know, that seems to be a bit that way in fandom. You're one or the other. Hmm. I, I think if it's a great game, I love it. So... Um, yeah, I didn't get into a lot of their later titles. Actually, I got right into, off the adventure games, I got right into the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games. I spent, uh, X-Wing is the reason I bought a mouse, because we didn't have a mouse to that point. This is back in the day when, you know, that wasn't standard, because Windows wasn't really a thing. And um, that's the reason I bought a sound card as well, because there was no PC speaker on that one, so... And like Sierra, you look at the titles, you, you look at the companies back then, you go, oh, that's probably going to be good because of where it's from and who wrote it. So, yeah. 
Well, Sierra had a tie-in with Disney as well, and they had titles like Black Cauldron and Winnie the Pooh yep. in the Hundred Acre Wood. Mm. Um, yep. What did you think of this deal, and um, uh, why didn't it last? My knowledge of the Disney deal comes from research and, and talking to people who were there. I didn't play any of those games when they first came out. They were sort of a bit before my time. I came in in sort of 88, 89 when, when as I said, Hero Quest came out. Um, but... Uh, to answer your second question first, the reason they didn't work, uh, the simple answer is they didn't make enough money for Sierra because they were splitting so much of the profits with Disney. When you look at the history of Sierra, if you take the rose-coloured glasses off and you know, the nostalgia and all that away, Ken Williams is a brilliant manager and very, very good at making money and making the right decisions to make money. And that's fine because that's what they, you know, that's what you have to do when you're a business. But I think the Disney deal, bottom line, just didn't make them enough money. A lot of creative issues there too. Um, Disney, from what I understand, had a lot of, uh, they had a lot of influence or wanted a lot of influence on the on the process, and uh, to the point where, and Al Lowe told me this, and it's it's in the book that he. Um, would get these messages through from notes. In movies or TV, you would call them notes from executives. And that's what they would get about the game. It's like, change the colour of this or, you know, make this minor change and that. And they're all just little tweaks just to make these people who were assigned to oversee this stuff at Disney feel like they've been part of the process, even though they really weren't. Um, and so I think there was a frustration there as well. Yeah. Actually, funny story with Al, he did his final game, which was Donald Duck's Playground, um, completely just made it and presented it to Disney, and then they wanted to make these changes. And he's like, oh, look, it's already done. Um, you can either sell it now and make money, or we're not going to be able to get back to it for ages and ages and ages. And he just basically did an end run around them and uh, <laughs> just got Ken to sign it off and put it on the shelf and sell it. So... I think there was definitely a frustration with working with um, the Disney people because they were assigned, Disney actually assigned it to their educational department. And so these, this is the department that made the little, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, counting films for schools and, on, and all that sort of stuff. So they didn't really know, as most big companies didn't back in the day when computers weren't a big thing, they didn't know to, you know, what to do with it, what to do with computer games, what are computer games. So, that, you know, they didn't have, like nowadays, where they have their own division. Well, you know, they own LucasArts as well. But back in the day, they didn't. They just um, sort of pawned it off to these two old school teachers, as Al said. And it, it always amused me as well that the guy who made Leisure Suit Larry was making Disney games. It was like, you know, it couldn't have been more different, really. It's such a it's such a contrast. I mean, he's... he's um, and we, we alluded to this, actually, when we were just talking before we started yeah. the um, start of recording. Al Lowe is legitimately one of the funniest men I've ever had the privilege of speaking to, and I know you guys have had him on the show as well. Mm -hmm. And he is just so hysterically funny, but he's so broadly talented. It's not just, you know, the you know sexual innuendo of Leisure Suit Larry. Um, but, you know, he's got his, you know, he's a school teacher. He's a music teacher. He's a very accomplished musician. Um, you know, sax... Uh, saxophonist is that the word but, yeah, you know he plays saxophone <laughs> so uh you know very very accomplished in a, in a lot of areas so um yeah really really unique guy but it does it cracks me up as well and knowing that um ken williams 
brought him to Sierra because he privately made on his own with his own company, you know, three little educational games based on sort of what Sierra was doing and was selling them at trade shows before, you know, when Ken got his interest. And then he ends up doing a remake of Soft Porn, which was, you know, their work, their most notorious titles. Yeah. And that's the thing about Sierra, I guess. I mean, did you know, I mean, when there was different designers working on different mm. games, I mean, did it kind of make the Sierra world a bit quite diverse and each game quite unique, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I, I think there was a, at least up until Ken sort of took his hand off, Ken had his hand in everything really a lot right up until probably when Bill Davis started with the company as a creative director in the late, eight, um, probably 1990, 91, around there somewhere. Um and I think Ken used to leave the designer alone. They were given, um, you know, they, they might pitch the title to Ken and Ken goes yes or no, and then they're left alone to go and make the game, particularly in the really early days when you're talking those, you know, the pre-King's Quest, Quest games like, um, you know, Ulysses and the Golden Fleece and Time Zone and Cranston Manor and all those sort of uh, mystery house, of course, with uh, Roberta. Um he left the designer alone to just design the game and they might only have one or two programmers. So I think that designer then comes through the game. So, you know, Leisure Suit Larry is our low. Space Quest is so, you know, Mark Crow and Scott Murphy. And I, I think you, as you go along into later years when they're, you know, much bigger teams, you lose that. Except for the Al Lowe games. I think the Al Lowe games do keep that all the way through, um, right up to um, Larry 7. But I think, yeah, I think you're definitely right. I think that, that distinctive designer feel comes through in every game. So, yeah. Well, you mentioned Ken and Roberta Williams there as well. Yep. Um, I'm <laughs> sure you're definitely going to mention them in the book. Um, oh, yeah. A couple could of times. you briefly um, <laughs> tell their kind of uh, story? So Ken and Roberta were uh, basically they were living in Los Angeles, um, you know, suburban Los Angeles, and Roberta, uh, Ken was making, he was actually building a programming language or something along those lines um, to to sell. He's a very entrepreneurial guy. He'd been in, uh, he'd established um, selling software and distributing software for other people for a, a, as a different company before he. Um, started Sierra, uh, brought a computer home and Roberta was like fascinated by the idea of uh, computer games and they'd played the text adventures like, you know, Colossal Cave and all that sort of stuff and it just sparked Roberta's imagination and she's like, Ken, I want to do this but I want graphics and Ken's like, you know, not possible and then, you know, goes away and thinks about it and goes, no, actually, I think I could do it and works out how to do it and store it in, you know, those very small um, capacities and really, really great programmers, particularly really brilliant Apple II programmer and was able to, you know, take four colours and dither them into like 16 colours on these four-colour CGA palettes and all that sort of stuff. So very, very brilliant in that way. And, you know, they did Mystery House. Roberta wrote it, Ken programmed it, and they sold it from home and... A long story short, it just went gangbusters. They got, you know, sent a box of them to Ken's brother, John, who was employee number three for the company. And John used to stick boxes of them in the back of the car and take them around to computer shops, which were just starting to pop up around that time. And he's like, hey, I've got this game, you know, loaded up in the shop. 
get people interested, see the crowd of people gather around it. And then, you know, the people that go, oh, well, I'll buy 10 copies or I'll buy 20 copies off you. Um, the great thing about Ken and Roberta is they were the whole company um, for a pretty, you know, for its entire life. Yeah. But particularly in those early days, they were the company and they, you know, they had their home phone number on the um, hint line. So people would ring in and they would actually get Roberta Williams on the phone. You can't imagine that nowadays, but, oh, <laughs> you know, they, you, you get Roberta Williams on the phone or, you know, the designer, she wasn't a name back then. So, you know, the designer on the, of the game on the phone, you know, and she established that pattern of giving out progressively um, less vague hints, you know, starting vague and working up to just, you know, smash them in the face with the, with the answer type, you know, like the hint books used to be. Um, that's how she, she did that. So yeah, they did that. And then they moved out to, um, Coarse Gold, Oakhurst, and uh, yeah, went through a few things there and set up. They had some family out there. They had, um, I, I believe it was Roberta's um, family had an apple orchard or something along those lines, out out near Oakhurst. So they established the business out there, which was really great for the centrality of all these arty type people gathered together making games and, you know, making money together and partying and all, you know, real frat house type atmosphere in those early days. That was really an advantage. But, you know, when it became big business in the 90s, it was a decided disadvantage because, you know, for example, they only had one, uh, you know, uh, T1 internet line into the town mm. and it would only take a storm to knock it out and they wouldn't have internet access for um or any you know anything and this is even in you know 95 when they're running like the sierra network imagination network and they're running that out of oakhurst and it might go down because of a thunderstorm for four days or you know a blizzard or yeah, um, not good. Had it, had, had it, I'm trying to think how Johnny, uh, John Williams put it. He said, um, well, some Yahoo would shoot out the telegraph poles um, <laughs> on, on a Friday night and you'd be out without phones and internet for, you know, three or four days till they fixed it. Yeah, <laughs> so, no one could work for a week because of that, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, Well, talking about underrated Sierra games, I mean, Ravi and I were talking before yes. we started recording, actually, yep. about, you know, games like Co Codename Iceman, that you never see mentioned in, like, retro gaming reviews and stuff. I mean, mm, so people might mm. not know about that game. Tell us a bit about it and, like, any, any you think are right, un underrated. Oh, look, I, <laughs> I think Codename Iceman is underrated, but I think it's underrated because it's a bad game, <laughs> to be honest. Um, look, uh, Code Codename Iceman is one of those games is I'll just go back a step Ken Williams um, as I said he was a really brilliant manager but also really good on ideas and Corey Coles who, who designed the uh, Quest for Glory games with his wife um, they he, he told me that basically you waited for a third time when Ken instructed you to do something so Ken would come to you with an idea and say I'd like to implement this and then he'd go away. If he came back and you'd, you'd go, yeah, Ken, that's a great idea, but don't do anything about it. If he came back a second time, you go, well, I should file that away because he might be quite serious about it. But if he comes back a third time, that's when you go ahead and actually do it because he's really serious about it. Because um, he had a lot of, I don't want to say flights of fancy, but something would grab his attention. He's like, we could do that and we could do it better and cheaper and make a, make a bucket load of money out of it. Um, one of his ideas was he's like, well, we do, you know, we got the we got the Leisure Suit Larry type games, we got 
role playing, we've got this, we've got that, we've got fantasy, etc. We should do secret agent. And so he goes to Jim Walls, who's a retired cop, and goes, "You like the James Bond movies, don't you? Yep. Uh, make a secret agent game." And that's like, even saying it right now, I'm like, that's even unbelievable in my mind that that's how games were made, <laughs> or that's how games were launched. It's like, I'd like a secret agent game. Go make one. And so they went out and they went out and made that. They had a lot of trouble with that game. Um, a lot of um, a lot of technical issues. A lot of the whole second half of the game is pretty much unplayable on modern machines, or even at the time, because they tried to do a simulation machine within their own framework, uh, coding framework, which didn't work. So it's got some beautiful backgrounds. I'll give it that though. It's got some beautiful backgrounds and some great music. But um, and they they did move a sequel. It was going to be Codename Phoenix was the second game, but they just never never made it because it didn't make enough money. Um, underrated titles, I think. Um, I think the two Manhunter games, I think they are criminally underrated. I think they are absolutely brilliant. If not the best that Sierra did, but certainly up there. Um, I just the whole concept of you know alien invasion, post-apocalyptic world, and very rarely done in computer games at the time. It's a bit overdone nowadays, but I, I think they're they're really underrated games. Um, Gold Rush. Uh, I, I actually played Gold Rush at school. Um, I realised many years later that, and I even did it today, talking to you guys, Heroes Quest is my first game. It's probably technically not because I'm pretty sure we played Gold Rush at school um, as a, you know, one of those fun educational things when you've got a cool teacher in school. So <laughs> right. um, I think Gold Rush is an under underrated one. And I, I think some of their sort of arcade type games, people people think Sierra, they think adventure games. I think they did some amazing arcade games. Um, you know, as I said, Jones in the Fast Lane, I think is just very unique. There's, there's still nothing like that out there nowadays. Um, I love the Thexter ports. I like Zelliard. Well, yeah, there's probably others. <laughs> Sierra seemed um, very kind of fast on uptaking new technology, especially CD-ROM. Um, yep. with the edutainment title uh, mixed up Mother yes. Goose. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. yep. Why do you think this is, uh, that they were so fast with tech? Um, well, Ken Williams' philosophy for Sierra was to always be at the forefront. Don't play catch-up. Always be at the forefront of, of the industry. Always be at the front and lead the way. Um, so if... Look, Sierra actually developed a lot of those technologies that they that they moved forward with. Or they were very, very early instigators of it. Like CD-ROM technology, I don't know if they were the first CD-ROM game. There's a bit of doubt about the timing. Could be another one called The Hole, I think, by, um, I think it's Broderbund. But, I mean, they were very early on. You're right, Mixed Up Mother Goose and King's Quest V was their big, big launch title uh, with that. So I think Ken just liked, he liked pushing the technology. He liked to always be, you know, always show off something new. You, you look at the series of progressions, you go into sound cards in King's Quest 4 from just these beeps and boops. They go to the full MIDI you know, sound card in, in King's Quest 4 because Roberta goes, well, these are a cinematic game, Ken. I'd, I'd like proper music in it. So he makes a game with music in it. I think they basically had an idea and decided on the idea. They liked the idea, and instead of bringing the idea back to the technology, they built the technology or developed the technology up to the point where they could implement the idea. 
And yeah. I think it's uh, probably backwards to the way we do a lot of things nowadays. But I think that's what it is. Ken just liked being at the forefront. And if you look at when Sierra started to decline, it's when they stopped being at the forefront. And it's when they started playing catch up and trying to, um, you know, we need a we need an online role playing game because we see them coming down the pipeline with Blizzard and whatever, uh, or you know, we need to do a shooter because everyone else is doing a shooter, and you know stuff like that. I think at the time they didn't look at any of that. They just said, no, this is the way we're heading. This is the idea. Let's get there. And I think that's probably why they were at the top of the game for so long. They also seem to uh, look back at themselves on technology. So um, they had the uh, SCI, which was the uh, creative interpreter, and they later developed the adventure game interpreter and started kind of retroactively um, fitting games and also redoing them. So they were doing like uh, the Police Quest 1 Redux. And I remember there was a Legendary Larry collection in like 97. And it was all, yeah, new VGA versions and stuff. What what did you think of those titles at the time and that strategy? Myself, I liked them. I mean, I enjoyed the uh, Quest for Glory 1 remake. I think it's it's probably the best of all their remakes. Uh, Probably... I don't love it quite as much, but I've got that nostalgic thing for the original. I, I think they were all very good. It's a matter of um, bottom line with the remakes. It was about money. Again, it was about money. It's um, They figured that they had the code base there. They had the artwork. They had the design, so they didn't need to really employ a designer. And so they're just like, you know, do a, do a paint over of this game was sort of the idea. But it turned out to be, well, actually, you've got to really design the whole game. Um, you know, when you move from a parser typing interface to a point and click, you know, it, it's a different game. So, um, and then in others like the Police Quest 1 remake, they reused a lot of assets from, um, from Police Quest 3, which was concurrent. They... They released all of those remakes. They started the remakes when VGA came in. So King's Quest V is their first VGA game. What you need to understand about how Sierra made money was back in the day before King's Quest V, everything before King's Quest V, they'd released new titles, but the bulk of their money was made in their catalogue. So, you know, in the older titles still sitting on the shelf. And it was something along the lines of like 60 or 70% of their entire revenue came from the older titles, not the new releases. And they would get a boost at Christmas with the new King's Quest or whatever, but the bulk of the money came from the old titles. When VGA hit, all of those 16-colour EGA games just fell off a cliff and they dropped down to practically nothing. So overnight, you know, big chunk of their revenue is just wiped out because of the advent of this new technology, which Sierra had pushed. So then the idea is, well, we've still got these old games. We'd like to sell them. Can we update them? So that was the that was the idea. And they thought it would be a cheap process, and it wasn't. You can talk to the two guys about it for the Space Quest remake, but, you know, they would have, you know, Crow and Murphy on the box, or two guys from Andromeda, but they both had very, very little, if anything, to do with the game. So... Um, it was an av- it was you know just an advertising thing to use their names, but yeah, it it was really about trying to m- get some more money. I don't want to say milk more money, but you know get more money out of the old titles. But personally, I love them all. I'm not a huge fan of Space Quest One. Um, 
I'm not a big fan of that 50s sort of sci-fi look. But then there's that, um, there's a vista shot, um, which is just cliffs on this desert planet in the original, where they turned into the bones of like this great big dinosaur-y type alien creature that you climbed instead. And I just think that's that's brilliant. I love it. And I've seen the original sketch of that, which is one big picture, whereas in the game it's divided into you know rooms, so it's split into like eight or nine different pictures. But so they did some really amazing stuff with those. But the main impetus behind it was just. Yeah, again, it was money and trying to trying to sell their old games. Well, talking about you know kind of cutting edge technology that Sierra used. I mean, when we got into like you know the, the mid nineties, we had the whole um, the FMV craze came along, and um, yes. some of their games like SWAT used. It. I mean, did you think that kind of suited Sierra's style? And I imagine that must have been quite pricey to produce. I, well, I believe that um, Phantasmagoria at the time was the most expensive game ever created to that point. Like seven CD-ROMs, um, was it, or something? Seven CD-ROMs yeah. or something something crazy like that. I, I'll i be honest with you, I don't think I've ever finished it. Mm. Um, I get a little bored with the FMVs because you can't skip the scenes. You, you, need to, you need to watch them, and it turns into a you know, seven or eight hour movie. So it has to be captivating me all the time. I have a low attention span though, so it might be that. Um, yeah, look, I, th- I think uh, I think it's just another example of they thought that um, that would be the future. They'd, I think they'd seen it used sparingly. Other companies had started to play with it and they said, oh, you know, this is one of those technologies they didn't develop, but I think they really pushed for a while so you know phantasmagoria gabriel knight the second gabriel knight um yes yeah, what they were really good sellers for them but i think interest from the public dried up more than anything else i think it was one of those sort of passing fads just with the general public they liked them for a while and then you know lost interest in them phantasmagoria was their biggest selling game period in the in the history of sierra so it definitely worked I think you probably think of that and people have just got CD-ROM drives and graphics cards and they want them to show it yep. off and push the limits, I guess. Yeah, that's, pro- that's probably true. You know, mm. you're starting to get into probably your, your double-speed CD-ROM drives maybe or even, you know, the fourth. You know, remember when we actually cared about the speed of the CD-ROM drives? <laughs> um, I wonder sometimes nowadays what our, what our CD-ROM drives actually spin at. But anyway, um, in, in, I don't in, know about you guys. Mine was a caddy. Yeah. I had a caddy. City rom. Yeah, to open so, a little box and put the disc in and close it. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, oh. in those final years of Sierra, just before they were kind of under Activision, they did uh, mm-hmm. 3D games and they were these kind of CGI titles like Gabriel Knight Free and um, yep. Leisure Suit Larry Magnum Come Lorde. Um, what yep. did you think of these titles? Was it kind of a last gasp to stay relevant? Yeah, look, um, Gabriel Knight 3 is actually the last adventure game. If you think of Sierra, and I think we all do think of the adventure games, there's the six big series that they did. And Gabriel Knight 3 is the last of those six big series. I think it's a great game. I think, unfortunately, the technology today doesn't hold up. I think back then it was fine, um, but... Yeah, today I don't think it holds up, whereas I think the older games do hold up. So, um, you know, when those almost cartoony graphics of the 16 or 256 colours, you, you get away with that. It's like watching an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon. It's 
you know, it is what it is, and you, you just accept that, whereas I think the 3D is a bit of a problem. It's a little clunky um, at times. Quest for Glory 5 is the other one. Um, the big problem with those games for Sierra as a company was that they cost so much to make because they decided they didn't want to use their internal SCI engine anymore by that stage. So they had to build the engine as well as the game from the ground up, particularly Gabriel Knight 3. They, the production story of that game is just horrendous. Jane Jensen, obviously one of the great designers, had written the Bible of the game, you know, written the, written the game and had everything worked out how she wanted it done. And, but the engine itself was just, uh, they developed a prototype. Uh, so one design, one um, programmer, sorry, had developed this prototype of an engine to showcase what they wanted to be able to do. And then he sort of left the project and moved on to something else. And the next team came in and just kept building upon this prototype. Just, And it became this just completely unwieldy mess where it was taking, you know, like three minutes to even get past the loading screen when they were trying to run the game and compile the game. And they actually eventually, it's a, it's a pretty big story, but the bottom line is they had to scrap the engine completely and start from scratch and program it all. Uh, what we've got today was programmed in like six months for a you know, three-year production. Um, I, I think they were trying... I think they saw that the downturn was on for adventure games or what they perceived as a downturn of adventure games was you know, in full effect by then. And they were trying to you know, make a modern adventure game that would sell. And, you know, Gabriel Knight 3 sold pretty well, but long production times, very limited replayability in, in adventure games. Uh, so it's cheaper and easier to push out a shooter. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Everyone yeah. wanted FPS games and all that around that time, didn't they? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of, one, of the, um, one of the interesting little stories, and I actually got this from uh, John Romero, who is one of the Johns from id that did doom and wolfenstein and all that and he actually uh said that ken williams made an offer for sierra uh sorry for id at one point after they'd released wolfenstein he saw wolfenstein in the office and it was being played and he's like well none of my staff are getting any work done because they're playing this game so he found out about them saw them at this show or something and said look i'll give you this bucket of money for id this was sort of the time he was starting to buy acquire other companies and you know, the guys went back and they're like oh yeah yes no yes no and they decided that they would probably sell and went back to ken and ken's like oh no passing passing fantasy Ooh. don't worry about it <laughs> and, and and this was like you know six months before they released doom and so they're at this show where doom had just swept the awards and um, Romero comes up to Ken Williams and goes, oh, you know, you know, shake his hand and say good day and whatever. And John's like, oh, I remember you were going to buy the company. And Ken's like, yeah, really fucked that one up, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> so- <laughs> That's kind of like uh, Decca Records missing out on the Beatles, isn't it? It's a bit similar to that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But you can't, you can't, every, every hit can't be a winner. Yeah, so, exactly. You know. And it might have been different. Yeah. You never know if that happened. Oh, look, how, how would it have gone? They, I think they had a completely different... Uh, you know, company philosophy than mm. Sierra. 
anyway, I don't know how they would have worked. But Ken did leave the little Ken did leave the companies he bought alone to a great extent to keep doing what they were doing because he bought them because they were doing something that he liked. So now he bought Papyrus because they were doing car racing games and he thought we need to have an edge in that market and he bought Dynamics because they were doing you know uh, simulators, the uh, BattleTech stuff. And he thought we need an edge in that market, and they they know what they're doing. You know, people like Damon Sly and um, all that at, at Dynamics—they're brilliant people. So don't hamper them with extra extra rubbish, extra red tape, or anything like that. Just let them do what they do and give them the money to do it, and he'll make me money. Well, after the you know Sierra Glory days, I mean, obviously mm-hmm. Sierra heavy, heavily influenced you. Um, tell yep. us a bit about Infamous Adventures and this company that you started in two thousand four. Was that to kind of continue like that kind of inspiration of those Sierra games? Yeah, look, I, actually, that the whole story of that uh, predates um, Infamous Quest. So, Infamous Adventures was this fan company that me and my uh, now business partner Stephen Alexander we we just we just met on like some adventure game fan forums and we just started talking one day about this how awesome would it be if we were playing hero quest and we connected on that sort of spiritual level and the fact that we both call it hero quest and you know how cool would it be if you're the villain and you just go into town and you know you kill crap and you know kill the sheriff and you know go out and just you know run havoc and you know these sort of you know college university days when you think of these sort of weird ideas uh, but you know we, we struck up a friendship and then we realized we, we started to make the game um and we realized that there's no way possible we have no idea what the hell we're doing so we thought well what we can do is go back and look at you know some of the classic sierra titles and maybe you know try to try to just reprogram in a modern engine King's Quest 3, which was the one we chose. And, you know, we learned how to do that, and we had other people come on board to update the graphics, and we ended up uh, releasing our remake of King's Quest 3, um, which was really, really awesome, because the only other group that had actually released a remake at that point was uh, a group calling themselves Tierra, which became um, AGDI, who are still around and doing great things. Uh so we we released King's Quest three and that was uh, it was really well received. We had um, we had to get extra download servers when that when that came out, and again sort of ignored <laughs> this whole quest for infamy idea, which was our original going to Spielberg and kill people idea, um, and decided well Space Quest two, we just love that. So and we made Space Quest two and we released it. And it was really, really popular. But we actually felt really competent by that stage that we had the ability to design a game because we'd, we'd made this progression. In King's Quest Three. we made it as close as we could to the original. Um, that, that was our intended goal. And we, I, I, I'm fairly happy to say we achieved that, except with the spell system. But I will still argue that the spells in the original game were just copy protection. So... Um, you know, typing all that rubbish out of the manual. Yeah. <laughs> um, I probably shouldn't have changed it to just a click because it is like a third of the game, but that's a decision you make at the time and I'm not going to change it now. So, <laughs> um, But Space Quest 2, we redesigned the whole second half of the game. So the whole section of the asteroid, which we thought was very barren and bare and, you know, just felt a bit rushed, which in retrospect, having talked to Scott and Mark, probably was a bit rushed because Ken's like... Where's my new game? Where's, you know, we've got to get a Space Quest on the market. It's nearly Christmas. 
it's October. It's got to be on the shelves by November. Um, so it's probably the reason. But, you know, we, we redesigned that entire asteroid and we had a lot of fun in that design process and just making it all fit. And by that stage, we felt competent enough that we could actually pull off a game and we decided to make the biggest, most ridiculously massive project in Quest for Infamy, um, you know, translating it to a original setting so that we could actually sell it. And we went commercial with that game. It did, did quite well. And um, But that was... That game, Quest for Infamy, is... Firstly, it's a labour of love. Um, it's absolutely huge. I think just physically the number of rooms and animations is probably like five or six times the amount that are in the original Heroes Quest. Um, and, you know, very deep and convoluted plot that I, I swear some people... I still think there's things in that game that we put in that people haven't found yet. And it's been out for, you know, four or five years now. And... But we made we made this game with an amazing team that we assembled, which was pretty much the core of our team is the same ones that have been with us since day one um, with King's Quest Three. So we'd all sort of developed together, and we're all quite you know we're all good friends and that. So um, yeah, we came out with Quest for Infamy, which is just this massive monstrosity of a game. But it's, I mean, I'm I'm immensely proud of it. I absolutely love it. But it, it is all about our love for Hero Quest our love for pretty much everything the Coles have touched um, and gave me one of the, one of the joys of my life is, uh, you know, striking up a friendship with Corey in particular um, and just having some conversations with him over time. And um, the, uh, the other person is uh, Scott Murphy, who uh, when we released quest for infamy, actually on release day, did a live stream dust dust, but he joined our live stream and just sat there and talked to us for like, eight or ten hours about oh, wow. all things Sierra and, um, you know, our games and just life in general and all that sort of stuff, a bit of, bit of their, you know, um, space venture and all, all that sort of stuff. So it was, as, as honestly, that conversation is one of the highlights of my life. It's, um, it's crazy that I can sit there in a conversation with one of these heroes of mine who designed the most amazing games. I love the Space Quest games. So, you know... And have you ever, like, had contact with, like, Ken or anything? Like, did, what, what, find out what he thought of your games or... Um, uh, not with regards to the games. With regards to the, the Sierra book, I, I've spoken to Ken. Um, he's a hard man to track down because he's got a boat and he loves travelling. So, um, if he's not at home in Seattle, he's in Mexico or Canada or somewhere else but yeah not not with regards to the game probably the Sierra people who have who've spoken about our games uh as I said Scott um Josh Mandel who's legitimately one of the nicest guys I've ever had the privilege of talking to um such a great help um gave us some you know some really good advice early on and um so did scott actually scott gave me some brilliant advice which he'd received from roberta so i feel like you know um that's pretty cool which was basically make sure you have your ending in mind when you start your game because when you design your puzzles you want to design them backwards because you want the player to end up with this item how are they going to get this item and sort of work your way backwards from there so um simple something simple yeah when i say it but it's um it's really profoundly changed the way i design puzzles um yeah so 
Yeah, Scott, um, Scott and Josh are probably the two people that I've spoken to most. Actually, uh, Garuka uh, Singh uh, Kasala, I think it's pronounced. Anyway, Garuka was um, producer, the, the first producer at the Sierra, and he's played my games and uh, really love them as well so well that, that, that's awesome though isn't it it's a that's, that's a real kind of must be kind of validation quite a bit that you've done the right thing with them and oh yeah. big time big yeah. time josh actually um josh voiced king graham for us in our king's quest 3 remake because he did king graham in the proper king's quest 5 cd-rom edition and he voiced king graham again in our um in our king's quest 3 remake and enjoyed that enjoyed it so much he did um uh, David Letterdroid in our Space Quest 2 one. Like a childhood dream come true having these guys work with you, I imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. I, um, Josh is, um, as I said, yeah, uh, uh, amazing. I mean, I'm a huge fan of both um, Freddie Farkas, probably one of, you know, in my top five, and um, Callahan's Cross Time Saloon because I love the Callahan novels. And I didn't realise for many years that Josh was the designer on that for, um, for Legend, I think it was, so just getting the getting to chat to him about that stuff it's really hard not to fanboy out that's the <laughs> hardest part i had even when i did the interviews for the book and i'm talking to these people um some of them you know that's fine they're just you know the people who've worked for the company but some of these names that i would see float up the screen time and time again it's like you know and i'm a you know i'm a trained journalist by trade you know you know so you know i'm, I'm used to interviewing and talking to people it's just, yeah, it's a bit, you don't want to fanboy out. I usually make a point of it at the end of the interview. Uh, I'd be like, look, you know, thanks so much for talking to me. I've got to say, and I'm going to preface this right now by saying that this is my fanboy moment. And so I'm about to, you know, just verbally spew all these questions at you <laughs> that you need to answer for me. So. <laughs> I mean, we have teased the book quite a bit there. Let, let's get into the Kickstarter and the book that you're writing about Sierra. Yes. Then. I mean, yep. what can we expect from this and who's going to be in the book and kind of what's the vibe of it? What's it all about? Okay. Well, um, look, the, the book came from... Um, the conversation, the, the idea for the book came from the conversation that I had with Scott Murphy in that conversation we just talked about a few minutes ago. And he uh, he was just telling us some of these little-known stories, and I'm like, it's not just the history of these games. This is a company that mattered in our, if I could put it as our social history. You know, this is a company that was there... I think it's a microcosm of the computer industry, the gaming industry, um, the you know the 1980s, so you know Reagan Thatcher type commercialism that was you know in industry at the time. I think it's just so interesting, and I thought I, every time I'd look for information on it, there's nothing out there. There's you know there's interviews around with people where they drop tidbits here and there. There's um, there's Steve, uh, a journalist by the name of I think it's Stephen Levy wrote Hackers back in like 1983 or 84 or something, mm. which is which has a really big section on the early early history of Sierra, but it predates King's Quest One, so we're not even talking the golden era of Sierra. We're just talking like the really early years, which are just as fascinating. But um, yeah, and sort of through the through the over the years, I just kept thinking about this idea, and I'm like, 
you know what, I'm a journalist. You know, I've spent all this money on this degree that I don't use in my real life um, to any great extent. Let's just write the damn thing myself. So I, um, I thought, you know, big ideas. And uh, the first person I approached was Josh. And he's like, absolutely. And interviewing him first, which was a great interview because Josh is so easy to talk to and... Um, it's probably not the greatest interview I've ever conducted, but it was it was great and got a lot of lot of good stuff out of him. Opened a lot of doors for me with other people. Um, just being uh, with Josh's permission, just being able to drop his name and say, "Look, um, yeah, I'm writing this book, but you know, and I do have some. Here's some of the here's some of the credence. I've I've already interviewed Josh for it, and he's recommended you or said you were important in the company at this point, or you know, whatever. Probably word it nicer than that, but. Um, you know, so it opened a lot of doors. So that was that was the idea behind the book. I wanted to read it. That's really what it is. I wanted to read the book. I wanted to know the history. I think I'm a bit OCD. I like to know everything. So, you know, I just wanted to know it all. And if the only way I could get that was to do it myself. There's been a lot of attempts at a, at a, at a book or a documentary or a film or whatever um, that have not happened or that I haven't seen. I I don't know. There's possibly half a dozen things sitting off in the background somewhere that people are still working on about to release, um, which would probably be about my luck. But, um, yeah, I, I'd never seen anything, and I couldn't see anything coming up, so I just, yeah, decided to write it myself. And when can and, we expect uh, it then? I used to say the book was finished, <laughs> um, because it was. I have the manuscript of um of the book and it's 130,000 words so it's not a small book um and i don't cover a lot of stuff either because you're going to pick and choose you know i I had to just say i can't touch dynamics because that's a book in its own right you know i mentioned them of course but you know i can't go into detail there or anything like that so um i had this manuscript and i've got this manuscript and there was a number of people that I really, really wanted to interview. And um, obviously, Sierra has the six big adventure titles, so I wanted to at least cover all those people. And I couldn't quite get all of them. And somebody I really wanted to talk to was Scott Murphy, and um, he's it's fairly public knowledge that he's um, had some health issues of late. Mm-hmm. So um, he wasn't able to, but he's, he's able to now um, have a talk to me. And Scott is such an important person in the history of the company because he was there from day one. You know, he started working in their disc copying rooms, literally taking a disc out of the drive and putting the next one in and just copying them and, you know, whacking the labels on the discs and stuff like that and worked his way up to, I don't know if he was a head of studio or something like that, but, you know, very high up, right through designing and Space Quest, of course. And, you know, uh, so a lot of history there. And he's a great guy and I really wanted to talk to him. So... I've got that interview teed up in the next couple of weeks to have a chat to Scott, and then I'll have to obviously transcribe that and uh, sort of edit the book a bit. So, yeah, uh, look, I want it to be out. Look, it'll be out this year. I I guarantee that. Probably, you know, looking at the late end of the year. I've got got the printing set up and the the e-book stuff set up. The reason I'm running, running a Kickstarter on it, I just want to be able to pay a professional editor to edit the book and make sure my words make sense. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of money involved. It's not going to be a massive amount of money in the Kickstarter. And I'm working at sort of a pre-order system 
as well. So, so there's that as well. And they'll be able to get it in paperback, hardback, or electronic. Well, Sean, I think anyone that's listened to this interview will be, you know, dying to get hold of a copy of the book and uh, really excited mm. about it. So, as soon as you do get a date and it's live, I mean, obviously let us know. And we'll, we'll put it out there on our show notes and on our social Absolutely. and everything as well. So, it's been amazing getting the stories of uh, Sierra though and catching up with you, Sean. So, thank you so much for joining us this week. Hey, thank you very much for having me. As um, yeah, it's a, it's a great um, it's a great show you guys have got. So um, happy to be on it.